explaining that to you guys by the, by the end of our time this morning. Um, but one of the reasons I love this story, and it's not just because the greatest vacation Bible school song of all time was created from the story. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Which is, some of you guys are laughing, some of you guys are like, what is this guy talking about? Christians like to steal things from culture, right, and then kind of make them their own. And so this song, you can look it up on YouTube, but it's basically a ripoff of the Hokey Pokey, right, where, you know, you sing about Father Abraham, he has many sons, I'm one of his sons, and so are you. And then we say, let's all praise the Lord, and then you like, throw your right home like right arm in and by the end you're spinning around and jumping up and down and obviously kids love it it's fantastic because it's the uh, Christianized version of the hokey pokey and all little kids love the hokey pokey right but you know just because that song is so great there actually is some truth in it and by some I mean quite a bit Um, the, the the theological truth behind the idea of Abraham being the father of many is crucial to a proper understanding of the flow of the Old Testament and subsequently the New Testament when we see Jesus arrive. And so it's, it's kind of cute because we see kids singing these songs and yet there's profound truth behind what they're singing uh, when, they're doing, when, when, when they're going through the hand motions and singing all those words, okay? And so kind of what we've seen so far, because we're only to Genesis chapter 12 and we've been through about three or four sermons at this point, it's going to start ramping up and going a lot faster from here on out, I promise. Um, but what we've been seeing at this point is this idea of when we look at the Bible, the Bible is one big holistic story of God unveiling who he is and who we are in light of who he is. Uh, we have this tendency to view a specifically the Old Testament as this collection of moralistic stories that kind of can give us some good ideas of how we can live or what we're supposed to do. But we don't see how everything's kind of joined together. And I, I shared a couple weeks ago, one of the biggest examples of this is the story of Jonah, right? When we, when we read the story of Jonah, Jonah swallowed by a fish and that my, my sweet little um, uh, Sunday school teacher when I was a kid, God bless her soul, was like, and if you don't behave and listen to your parents, you know, you might get swallowed by a fish, right, as punishment. Of course, as a third grader, I'm freaking out, you know. It's like, you know, not going to the ocean anymore, Dad, not happening, right, leave me home. I don't even want to get in the pool, right. And so we, we have this tendency to look at these stories, and, and, and the reality is the story of Jonah is actually a story of God's grace and goodness to Jonah because he kept him alive in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, after he'd been thrown overboard, and then had him thrown on land to be kept alive so that he could fulfill the mission of what God had called him to do in the first place. And it fits in the grand scheme of what God is doing from the outset, which when we look from the beginning, he creates life on earth, and he says everything is good. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, everything is disrupted by sin and destroyed. And then when we move past then, and what we're going to be looking at really for the rest of our time as we move through the Jesus Storybook Bible, is this idea of God works, working to rescue human beings. God, God working to rescue his creation and reconcile it back to himself, even in light of man and woman's disobedience towards him and their sin and treason. Okay, so, so bear with me this morning, okay, because the, the sermon this morning is going to take a little bit of a different shape. And one of the reasons is, is because I'm trying to cover nine chapters of scripture this morning. 
And so there's going to be moments where I'm giving you a flyover really quickly of what's happening in some few chapters, and then we're going to be zeroing in on some really, really important sections throughout that story because they're key to understanding why Abram is such a big deal and why really in reality, if you, if you know somebody that grew up Jewish, Abraham is considered the father of their faith and their country and who they are I, as an identity as human beings and as a people group. That he, that he is kind of the linchpin for them, and they think very, very highly of him. Okay, so Genesis chapter 12, that's where we're going to start. We're going to read these first three verses, and then we'll start breaking some things down. Now the Lord said to Abram, okay, and before we get any further, Abram is a descendant of, of Noah. If you look at the end of chapter 11, you can find, kind of find that genealogy and how it works out. But Abram is a descendant of Noah. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so Abraham, appear, Abraham gets this vision from, from God. He's still called Abram at this point. His name will change later on. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but he, he, he comes to Abram in this vision. He says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And, and when you get there, I'll, I'll, I'll appear to you and kind of let you know what's, what's going to happen next. Now, no, the reason this is a big deal, this isn't, you know, 2016 where you and I can hop in a car and drive somewhere in 45 minutes with you know, hotels along the way, or Airbnb, or whatever, whatever it is we want to do with the, the, the type of accommodations that we want. In, in this period of time, they, people lived in these kind of like tribal communities, almost kind of like city-states or, or, or small little communities. And they were heavily tied to your family line. And so basically what God is asking Abraham to do is leave your family— Leave your national identity, leave your country, leave your security, leave your wealth, and leave everything that you're kind of connected to and leave where your family is currently located and head off into this place where I'm actually not even going to tell you exactly where it is at this point. I just want you to start walking and then I'll tell you when you get there that you've arrived. Now this, this, is, this is important to understand at this point because we don't know anything else about Abraham who he is, what's been going on, other than he's a descendant of Noah, and that the moment Noah and his family stepped off of the ark, disobedience was starting to run rampant again. And so we see God asking Abraham to do something, and his, res his response is going to be, okay, okay, God, uh, I'll, I'll do what you're asking. And this, I mean, what God is asking Abraham to do is kind of like asking a 16-year-old to leave their house without finishing high school with no job and no education and trust that God's going to take care of them. That's, that's, basic, that's like the equivalent of what God is asking Abraham to do here. And then he gives Abraham a threefold promise as he tells him to leave. He says, first, I will make you a great nation. He says, secondly, I will bless you and make your name great. And then lastly, he says, in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, now, focus in on that last one here for a second and just think about kind of the lunacy of that. 
Okay? Through one guy, Abraham, the entire human race is going to be blessed according to what God is promising here. Now, one, you have a random farmer slash herder in the middle of ancient Palestine being told by the God of the universe that you are so important to my plan for the human race that everyone is going to be able to trace themselves back to you as, their, as the ultimate blessing. This is what God is communicating here to him. And, and this is kind of interesting in light of what we've seen in the book of Genesis up until this point as well because Genesis chapters 3 through 11 are predominantly negative experiences. If, if you look at them closely and look at what's been happening, I mean, if you think about Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve disobey and transgress. You've got the killing, right, the first murder shortly thereafter. You've got the flood story. You've got people constantly disobeying and God saying that the entire planet is wicked. We had the story of the, the Tower of Babel that we talked about. And Basically, what we've seen is story after story, time after time, these negative experiences of human beings' sin disrupting the relationship with God and God having to react in some way. And so when we get to Genesis 12, God shows up and says, actually, my promise to you is kind of a reversal of the experiences that human beings have been having up until now with me because of their sin. I'm going to give you a family blessing. I'm going to bless you as a nation. And I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Now, I'm not going to kind of let the cat out of the bag yet about that last part, about how Abraham is going to be a blessing to the entire human race. Some of you guys already know where I'm going with this. But, but I want you, as we're reading through the story, to keep that in the back of your mind, that part of this original promise to Abraham was you will be a blessing to the entire world, to the nations, right? To every people group, you will be a blessing. And as we're reading through this story, let's be thinking about how this could even be possible. And then we're going to connect it all back together at the end, okay? And so Abraham has this moment where God comes to visit him. He says, all right, God, I'll go. Well, I'll take my nephew Lot with me, and, and we'll go out into the world, and, and we'll follow after these promises that you made to us. Now, I'm going to be running through some stories real quick to kind of like let you know what happened in Abraham's timeline after this moment, okay? So after this big promise is made to him, and he decides to leave, and he gets his cousin Lot to go with him, you would think that if God showed up to you in a vision— what would obedience to God look like after, after that? You think it'd be hard or easy? Ho hopefully easy, right? I love, I love people all the time. It's like, if God just showed up to me right now and told me what to do, like, my life would be so much easier. And I was like, well, in reality, that's really dangerous because then if you do disobey, what excuse do you have, right? You're like, is God going to send me a text message? You know, can you send me an email? You know, maybe you can Snapchat me. I don't know. But if you could just like lay out my entire life and what I'm supposed to do right now, that'd be really great. And so Abraham has had like the equivalent of a, you know, 2000 BC Snapchat sent his way, Right? Like, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to bless you. Follow everything that I say. Keep, keep things in line. It's going to be great. Right? Just, just hear me out on this. And so he goes out into the land. And the moment they start walking and wandering back to this land, a famine hits. 
And so what they do, they say, okay, well, the, the famines hit this land. Egypt's a world superpower at this point. Let's head down to Egypt. Let's head down to Egypt. Let's hang out down there. We can get some food. We'll be able to graze our cattle. Things will be great. Now, the problem is, is when they get to Egypt, Abram forgets all the promises that God has just given him. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. All these awesome things are happening. So when you get to Genesis chapter 12, the second half of it, right, Abram starts freaking out. He's like, we're in this foreign land, right? The Egyptians, the Egyptians are going to see my wife. She's beautiful. They're going to want her and they're just going to kill me so they can have her. So here's, so Abram does what any terrible husband would do in this situation. He pimps out his wife. He shows up, he shows up to Egypt and they're like, wow, your wife is really beautiful. He's like, want her? It's my sister. Some of you guys are laughing. I think it's kind of disgusting, right? He's like, hey, here, here, here's my sister. She's beautiful. You can, you can have her as long as like my, my people and our herd are, are kind of protected and taken care of while we're here. And so he gives away his wife. And uh, this is one of those moments where I l- would have loved if Moses had written a little bit more. Right? I would love to have gotten Sarah's response in that situation. Like, I can never understand why Sarah's like, see you later. I'm heading back to your, your family's old land. We're done. Okay? But she sticks with him, right, through this terrible situation, right? And here's the, here's the crazy thing. The Egyptians, they know nothing about God, right? They're, they're, they're polytheistic in, in, in who they've become at this point, right? They take Sarah as their wife, and then God intervenes, and reveals to them, hey, this, this woman's already married. She already has a husband. What's going on here? And panic kind of ensues on their end. They're like, what have you done? And so they say, dude, take your wife, take your family, take your servants, take your sheep, goats, whatever else you have, and get out of here. Get out of Egypt, you're not allowed to be here. And so God sovereignly protects Abram and his family in the midst of this grotesque sin that Abram has just committed and God keeps them, protects them, and then sends them back out. And so they, they, they get sent back out, they head back north, they head into southern Palestine, once you get to Genesis chapter 13. And his nephew Lot and himself both kind of have these, these fairly large in, um, groups of flock or sheep They've got these pretty large groups of animals to take care of and say, okay, we need to separate. You know, our animals are fighting with each other over land. Let's separate, okay? So Lot goes to one part of the country, and Abram kind of settles in this other part of that area. And shortly thereafter, Abram gets word of, hey, Lot's been captured by a couple uh, tribes in the area, um, and they'll, they'll probably kill him or enslave him and his family. And so Abram says, okay, so he gets his men together, right, slaves and everyone that's working with him, and he goes and he takes back, right, not just Lot, but he wins back everything else that these tribes had taken from other people in the area. And then he goes to the kings of these areas and he says, here, have it all back. I don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm going to give 10% back to God because God gave me this victory. That, so here you have Abraham. This is, one of, this, is why I, this is why I love the Old Testament so much, because if we look at Old Testament guys as heroes, they fail us, but if we look at them as who they are, men or women, we're like, oh man, my life 
My life actually matches up really well with Abraham's, right? You have Abraham in this, this, this interesting dichotomy by the time you get to chapter 14, right? You have Abraham at chapter 12. Hey, leave your family. You know, don't, don't worry about anything anymore. Just go out and it'll be okay. He's like, okay, it's cool. I'll leave my family. I'll leave my inheritance. I'll leave everything that's going here. I got this. And then he, he leaves and then another moment of crisis of faith kind of comes up. And what does he do? He pimps out his wife, right? Not so good. Then, he, then God sovereignly takes care of him and moves him out of Egypt. They move back into Egypt. And then he has this other moment of crisis where he needs to decide to defend his family. And he steps up, he defends, and he decides to give the glory to God. And so you see this roller coaster of, of Abraham's life of like, I trust God. Where is God? I trust him again. What? And it's just this up and down. It's kind of like if some of you guys went to camp over the summers, right? And you would, at the end of the camp, you'd be like, I'm on fire, right? Every single person in my school is going to be saved this week, right? And everyone's so excited. And then like by ne the next Friday, you're like, this is really hard, right? And life be kind of comes this roller coaster of emotions of following and obeying the Lord of extreme highs and low lows, right? Good, bad, good, bad. And in the midst of that, what I want us to see is God's promise to Abraham reigns true. That what God promised to Abraham on the peaks of his obedience and the valleys of his disobedience remains true. And that there are even moments like when they were in Egypt where in the midst of Abram's disobedience, God will do the heavy lifting to see his promise reign true. And so you see this valley peak, valley peak, and then when we get to chapter 15, this is where, this is where we had read this morning. Abraham and God are going to have this, this huge moment with one another. Okay, look at, let's read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now let's stop there for a second. Okay, so, so God comes and meets Abram in a second vision. He says, fear not, right? I am your shield, I'm your reward. Your reward will be very great. Basically he's saying, hey, hey, Abram, don't worry, man. I've got you. I know you've been through a lot. Don't worry, I've got this. Right? I've, I, I, I've seen you. I know what I promised to you. I've got this on lockdown. And so obviously, right, and some of you guys can relate with this, anytime... We see a promise of God, right? And it's big, right? Abram does what any God-fearing man or woman would do with a huge promise where God says, I've got you. He worries, right? He, he, he gets this huge promise and he immediately starts questioning whether it's true or not. And look at verse two, right? Right after being told, hey, I've got you, Abram. Don't worry about this. Look at what Abram responds to, to the Lord saying. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And so 
he worries. He's, he, looks, he, looks, he, he looks back at God. He's like, what, what will you give me then? You promised that you were going to make a great nation of me. You promised that you were going to bless me. You promised that through me all nations would be blessed. It doesn't really look like it. I've been walking with you faithfully for probably a couple decades at this point. I don't have a kid. Right? Eliezer of Damascus is probably a slave that he purchased at some point along the road to Egypt. And he's like, you know, he loves Eliezer. He's like, he's a, he's a member of my house. But is he, I mean, can, he, can this promise really transfer down through him? Can this really be something that works out in this situation? And so he's, he's saying, look, you, are, are you going back on your promise? I'm getting old here. I don't, I don't have any offspring. Right? I have my nephew who I just had to rescue from people. Where, where is your promise? And so here's where God comes through. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, referring to Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him inside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this is, as far as like Israeli history and culture, especially this particular area of the world at the time, a lot of your worth was attached to how big your family was, and especially if you had male heirs to, to your birthright. And so the fact that Sarah and Abram were unable to have children at this point would have been an issue of shame for them and their culture. That some would have questioned that they'd done something wrong with God. There, there would have been all sorts of questions coming out. You know, what's going to happen to their family? What, what specifically is going on? And God says to Abram, no. You're going to have a kid and look to the stars of the sky. If you can number them, that's what your descendants are going to be like. So here you have Abram here sitting at this point, worried and not, not really in reality seeing God's promise come to fruition yet in his life. Doubting whether the original promise back in Genesis chapter 12 is ever going to reign true. He sits down, he's like, God, I, I, I don't know. And God's like, actually, it's better than you ever thought it was going to be. You're going to have a son, and your descendants are going to be like the number of the stars in the sky. Right now, a lot of you guys are young in here, so... You, you, you don't really know what like a battle with infertility is like, okay? But as a pastor now at this, at this point, I've walked through it with a number of people and our own family has experienced miscarriage, right? It, it is brutal. And so the types of things that Abraham and Sarah are walking through are very, very difficult. And so they are at this crossroads, Abram specifically, of 
we can't conceive, God. Like, what, like, what, like are you messing with me? Like, what, like, what, what is the point of all this? Right? I listened to you. I walked out. I stepped out in faith. What is going on? And God says, trust me. Right? It's even better than you think it's going to be. And verse 6 is in my mind, and this is just my opinion, the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. And here's why. Many of us think that God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. We say, well, God is, God is this angry, crazy dude who kind of like, you know, freaks out at moments in the Old Testament and kind of like does nice things and then like panics and gets mad again, right? And we see that we think like God himself is this roller coaster of emotions in the Old Testament, right? He's a God of wrath. He's a God of love. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of love, right? And then we get to the New Testament. We're like, okay, Jesus shows up and God is really safe, He's really safe and good, right? And it's not all about how we perform anymore. It's not all about what we're doing because Jesus has got our back and he performed for us already, right? It's not about me doing all those people that lived before Jesus. They had to, they had to work and earn their way and do all these things. But now that Jesus has shown up, we're good. Like how lucky are we to live post Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, right? And verse 6 of chapter 15 completely destroys that notion, right? If someone says to you, like, how can I know God, right? Hopefully, if you are a believer and follower and disciple of Jesus Christ here this morning, you would say, you have been saved by grace through faith alone. That it is the work of Jesus Christ that you are forgiven, loved, and accepted as a father, excuse me, as a son of the Father, that, that is the, 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 the calling card of a Christian. It's not me, it's Jesus. It's not me, it's God. It's what he's done already. And you look here, and the terminology that is used about Abram is what? He believed. What is that? Faith. He believed, he believed that the promises of God were as good as done. Even though he was old, had no children, and had no reason to believe that he would have children. All right, God, I believe you. And what does it say God did to him in return? He counted it to him as what? Righteousness. He was like, what does that mean? Right? I hear people use that term for good music. It's lost its meaning over time, right? Righteousness is a, is a biblical term for being accepted and standing in good favor with God. It basically, like in the sense of a courtroom, it means declared not guilty. And so, now let me ask you guys this question before we, before we get too far down this rabbit trail. Is Abram guilty of some sin? Yes. Yeah, just turn back to when he prostituted his wife out, Okay. Okay, kind, kind of a big deal. Okay, he, he does that, yet his faith and trust is in God and in the promises of God, and God says, that's what I'm looking for. And he looks at Abraham and he says, I count it as righteousness. Guys, that verse right there is quoted four times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Will you throw that up there for me real quick, Blaine? 
This, at, the end of, at the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul's trying to say, hey, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the point he's trying to make at the end of Romans chapter 3. And so when you get to Romans chapter 4, he's bringing that point home and he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, saying it wasn't by Abraham's good works, doing enough good things, but it was by what Abraham believed in and more specifically who he believed in that saved him wasn't like, oh, okay, Abraham did 10 good things and one bad thing, and that's what saved him. No, what declared him as righteous was his belief in God and the promises of God. That, ver- that same verse is quoted again later in Romans chapter 4. It's qu- quoted in the book of James, and it's also quoted in the book of Galatians. Every time in regards to reminding us that we are saved by faith in God and God alone. But it also shows us that God doesn't change the way he operates. God is a God of grace and mercy through faith, even from the beginning. From the outset. And that throughout the scriptures, faith is something to be exercised by God's people. That they either choose to believe God and his promises and what he has said or not. And throughout the Old Testament, that most manifests itself in times of crisis. Right? Noah and the flood. Will I believe that God is really going to flood the whole earth or not? Right? Abraham, leave these people and go and I will give you a son even though he was childless. Right? David, right? Hey, go stand up to that large giant and fight him. And as he, as the giant Goliath mocks God, David stares him down and says, I'm here. The Lord has sent me. You will be vanquished. His faith is counted to him as righteousness, which translated more easily, he's found favor with God long before he's performed any sort of amazing deeds, long before we could say that his sin has rendered him guilty, even though it has, God chooses him and Abraham trusts him. It's the story of the New Testament, guys. It's the story of what being a disciple of Jesus Christ is. God is not different from Old Testament to New Testament. And not only has has Abram been given this promise of a son, but in this promise that's given to him, he's really in reality been chosen as a special uh, messenger or person that God is going to work through. And so so Abram gets this word and and he he runs home and tells, well first he kind of laughs, then he runs home and tells Sarah, his wife, okay? And here's, here's kind of how the story plays out from there. Because you would expect that at this point, a couple of decades of walking with the Lord, the Lord shows up again. He says, God, I, I don't have a son yet. You know, what's going on here? And God says, don't worry, I've got you. You're going to have a kid. It's going to be really important, right? Believe me and trust me. And so he does. And you would expect at that point, at least, you know, my instant gratification mindset is like, boom, God would show up in that moment. You know, microwave, I can have my hot pocket in 30 seconds. Right? 
And he leaves and he tells his wife. And some time passes and guess what? You get to Genesis 16, no child. They're still, still waiting around. They've heard this promise. Nothing happens. And so here's where, right, Abraham makes another common mistake that the human race frequently does. God promises them something. They're waiting for that promise to reign true. And so what does Abraham do? He takes matters into his own hands. He, he's sitting there with his wife, and his wife's like, well, didn't God say you would have a son? We're old. Like, I can't have a kid now. She's like, I'll tell you what. I've got this servant girl named Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her? And after you do, right, then, then you can have this line and this son that God has promised to you. So I'll hand them over to you. Now, does anybody think that maybe something could go wrong here? No, none of you guys? Okay. Okay. L one person in the back. Thank you. Like, you know, what could possibly be go, go wrong when the wife of the husband is asking her husband to sleep with someone else? Yeah. It, it could create some issues maybe. And so Abraham's like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, yeah, this is a great idea, right? God, God told you this, but he didn't say it was going to be through me, right? And so um, if you just sleep with, with my servants, we can have this kid and we can kind of make sure God's promise comes true because he needs our help. And so he sleeps with Hagar. And sure enough, at this point, Abraham's eight, Abraham is 86 years old. And he has this child, he has this child with, with her. And they have this child named Ishmael. And sure enough, right, Hagar gets pregnant. And what does Sarah do? She flips out. Right, like the, the moment Hagar gets pregnant, she becomes super jealous. And she starts treating Hagar harshly. And so she, Hagar takes off running. And God kind of comes to Hagar and says, I'm going to take care of your son. Don't worry about it. Chill out. But then it's like God is immediately doing damage control on Abraham and Sarah. Right? He comes to Hagar and says, I'll protect Ishmael. But then he comes to Abraham and says, look, this wasn't the way it was supposed to go down. Sarah is going to have a baby. In the timing that I create, Sarah is going to have a baby. And Ishmael is not the one that I promised to you from the beginning. Even though you've taken matters into your own hands, the line that I've talked about with blessing is going to come through you and Sarah only. And you're going to have a son. And their response is more laughter. Sarah laughs. Abraham laughs as God tells him this. And, and, and God says, you know what? And name him Isaac, which means laughter. Laugh at me. This is nothing to me. You think me opening Sarah's womb is a big deal? This is nothing to me. But go ahead and laugh. And then I want you to make sure you name the child after that. So you remember your response to me in this moment. And so Sarah laughs, and there's this story about uh, some angels and what some people consider Jesus' first appearance on earth, right, where this, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah immediately afterwards. And Lot is rescued because of Abraham's begging of these angels to spare him and spare the people. And then we get just past that story, and we get to Genesis chapter 20, and guess what happens? 
It's this king named Abimelech, and guess what Abraham does to his wife again? He gives his wife away again, years later, to this king a second time. And this time, it's even better because Abimelech is like having these dreams, and God shows up as like, whoa, you're sleeping with another dude's wife right now. And of course, Abimelech freaks. <laughs> it's like, okay, what have you done to me? You gave me your wife? Like, what is wrong with you? And protects them again <laughs> and sends them out again. So twice now, in this very specific way, and multiple times over the course of Abraham's life, Abraham has been given this promise, and Abraham is jacked up over and over again, and yet God's promise continues to reign true to Abraham. And they leave, and we get to Genesis chapter 21, and look what happens. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. I love this. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and, and to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah gets pregnant, has the baby. They name him Isaac. Abraham's 100. But here's, what's, here's, what's, here's what we've seen over the course of nine chapters of Scripture. God makes a promise. Abraham and Sarah's life since that promise was a roller coaster of good and bad. And yet who came through? God. That in the midst of all of this, in the midst of sin, in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of them trying to take matters into their own hands, in the midst of Abraham giving his wife away to other men, God's promise reigned true and came through. And here is why this story, in my opinion, is the foundation for so much of those who follow Jesus' faith. Yes, it's a sweet story because God has redeemed Sarah out of infertility, right? Anyone who's struggled with that or seen others struggle with that know that this is amazing and a miracle, right? That, that God gave her children. And it's even beautiful because of the reminder back in chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham is counted righteous before God, not because of his works, but by what? His faith, it's a great reminder to you and I that our performance does not save us. That no, no number of good works you could ever do could earn God's favor. But that God's favor 
is earned, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks, by believing in God's goodness towards you and the promises that he's made. That it's completely based upon God and his goodness, not your performance. But the big deal actually goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Will you throw those back up there for me, Blaine? Verses 2 and 3 back in the beginning. He says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because, see guys, here's the reality. This promise to Abraham had far greater implications than just making sure Sarah had a son. It had implications for you and I. Here's the, here's the crazy thing about this. For some strange reason, God looked down over the human race and he looked at Abraham and said, you know what, Abraham? I pick you. I'm going to choose you not, not because you've done something special or because you're some great dude, but I'm going to choose you. And through you, my rescue plan for the human race is going to be set into motion. Through you, every single person that walks on this earth can be reconciled to me. And here's what I mean by that. Go to Matthew chapter 1 if you have a Bible. Abraham's family line is special, and it has nothing to do with Israel. And yet it has everything to do with Israel. Right, we hear over and over again, Israel, God's people, and they're chosen. And that's all well and fine. But it's not because of them as a political group or, an, or a, a political agent or a country. But it's because of what we read in Matthew chapter 1. Look at these first couple of verses with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of who? Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Which, by the way, all have huge roles in the stories that we're going to look at in the future weeks. Move all the way down towards the end with me. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Here is what Matthew is saying. When that promise was made to Abraham from the outset. And he said, you will be a blessing to everyone. Did Abraham end up doing anything? No. Thousands of years later, <laughs> through Abraham's line, a baby was born. God's son, Jesus Christ. And that baby altered the landscape of the entire universe. Right? God sent his only son 
to live a perfect life and then subsequently die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And Abraham's. Abraham became a blessing to the entire world simply because God chose him. And not only this, guys, but when God makes a promise, guess what? It comes to pass. We're talking about roughly 2,000 years of human history between that promise to Abraham and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the reality is the story of Abraham and all that we see in the Old Testament is pointing us to one place, and that's to Jesus. He's the center of everything. He's the reason we're here this morning. If, if Jesus didn't live and come and die for you and I, we have no reason to be here. We can go home, sleep in, have some coffee, right, catch some NFL or study this afternoon, but there's no reason for us to be here. And yet over the course of the last 2,000 years in the midst of persecution and people trying to stop the advancement of the church, one message has reigned true. God is good. When God makes a promise, he comes through. And he ultimately came through on that promise from the outset through his son, Jesus Christ. And that when those kids at Vacation Bible School are singing that song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And then they sing this line, I am one of them and so are you. It has nothing to do about what family line you grew up in. And has everything to do with have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you did, and if you have, you are a part of the promise that God has made in this book. The promise that he created the universe to be in peace and harmony and shalom and that we as humans have disrupted and destroyed that. And that he, as a loving God, Father, and King, has fixed it through the life of his Son. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. We do it every Sunday. And I would invite you, before you do so, to take some time to reflect on the magnitude of this story. I feel bad having to, to work through nine chapters of really important stuff and one message. But here's, here's the truth. God is good. God's promises always reign true. As Jesus hung from the cross and had slurs and hate spit at him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as right before he breathed his last breath, he looked out and says, it is finished. Once and for all, the Son of God has paid for the sins of mankind. And God asks simply that you place your trust that God has forgiven you in his Son through repentance and faith. 
might you reflect on the magnitude of God's promise all the way back to Abraham coming to fruition 2,000 years through his son and then 2,000 years later still working it out in the lives of people in this room, in your life, and the people all over this city and in this world. Let's pray. God, you are good to us and far better than anything we deserve. How amazing is it that we can look at covenant promises that you make. That from the outset are not dependent upon the performance of Abraham. God, what great comfort we can find in that. Lord, if we are left to our own devices, being told that we have to perform to earn your favor, we, like Abraham, will fail. We'll take matters into our own hands. We'll run and shrink in fear. And yet here's the good news. When you make a promise, it is done. So that when you promise us, as Jesus sat at the, at the Last Supper saying, this is my body, this is my flesh poured out for you, this is my blood poured out for you, there are no strings attached. He simply says, this is given to you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And that as we take communion this morning, we would remember that, we would confess sin, we would repent, but then we would joyfully worship you because it is finished because of what you have done, not because of our performance. And God, may we worship you as we take communion this morning and as we sing songs for the remainder of our time. Thank you, God. Love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.